In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. In the summer of 1999, I was finishing uh, graduate school in clinical psychology, and I had to change internships. And I uh, talked with a few friends and found a graduate internship at the uh, writing center in the English department. And it turned out to be uh, one of my favorite jobs of the dozen or so jobs I've had in my life. Uh, it was really great to sit down with people and to uh, learn a new skill, really, and how to support them to be able to learn how to write well without you know, doing it for them. Uh, of course, that's the trick. And uh, I noticed over the months that I was there that uh, it, it was a, almost a rule that uh, the younger students and the native English-speaking students did not really want my help, right? They were required by their uh, English professors and their 101 and 102 classes to come to the writing center a couple of times, but they didn't really want any kind of help. They wanted to kind of do the minimum. They really thought they were good enough to write. Uh, but the non-native English speakers, the visiting Chinese students and Korean students and Indian students, they had no illusions about their ability to write in English, and they were kind of desperate for help. And they would come back again and again, and they were hungry for advice and attention. Much the same way the older students who were returning, they were very wary about their abilities and uncertain about what they could do. They really wanted that help over and over again in the center. And it was that humility uh, that they had and that willingness to come back and work on their writing projects over and over again that got them almost universally great grades. They got much better grades than the native speakers of those kids that had been right out of school uh, who had just transitioned uh, because of the effort that they were willing to put in. Uh, the willingness to say, I don't think that I can do this, I'm, I need the help, is what really turned the key for so many of these students. And that is uh, the key, uh, very much a, a part of the lessons today, especially here in the wisdom literature in the book of Proverbs, you see uh, wisdom's call to the simple. Proverbs, of course, is written by King Solomon uh, about 1,000 B.C., so this is 1,000 years before Christ. This is the, the few years of the United Kingdom of Israel, uh, probably the height of the uh, Kingdom of Israel when their borders are the largest, when they're the most wealthy, when they're the most uh, militarily secure. And uh, Solomon is sitting in his palace in Jerusalem, and he's gathered great wealth and power, and he's writing about the wisdom of God. And we know that he himself expressed his own humility before the Lord. The Lord asks him, if you'll remember, what can I give you? And Solomon says, I want knowledge and understanding because I'm a child who's not able to care for these people. And the Lord says, I'll not only give you wisdom, but I'll give you uh, wealth and power as well. And of course, this is exactly what we see from Solomon. And he writes this beautiful book of Proverbs where we see um, all these pearls of wisdom. And in the middle of the book of uh, of Proverbs, we see this character emerge, where most of the Proverbs are almost kind of standalone turns of phrases and small metaphors and examples of wise living. We see this character, Sophia, uh, who comes to the forefront of the book. And Sophia is this woman who invites uh, people into her home. 
uh, Sophia or wisdom is this personified character and we see that she has set seven pillars and of course you know me I can't pass up a number in the Bible you all know what the number of seven means right you know it means completeness it's three the number of heaven plus four the number of earth so it's heaven and earth combined uh, that is all things so when wisdom sets her table on seven pillars we know that she's setting it upon heaven and earth joined together the completeness of God's creation that's the foundation for what it is that she's doing and she sends her women out to call the simple so again the question is will we answer the call when somebody goes out the doorstep and says all simple people come in here do we say that's me I'm simple I need wisdom I need help or do we say thanks but no I've got enough I'm quite right the way that I am so only those who are willing to answer the call of simplicity, who are willing to say, that's me, I'm simple, I need wisdom, will come in and feast at her banquet. And we see that she has set a banquet and that it is in the, in the practice of eating together, in the practice of banqueting together as family, that wisdom is provided. She sets out her bread and her wine. Does that remind you of anything? Bread and wine? Let's see, maybe we need to think for a minute. And so it's in setting her table with bread and wine and sharing this meal that she gives wisdom to those that come in. And so the gathering of the meal, the sharing of the meal is more than a metaphor, but it's a practice of us coming together and receiving the gifts of God, receiving His benefits, His glory, uh, in, that, in that acknowledgement of our own need, of our own simplicity and our own humility. And of course, this prophecy is fulfilled in the person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because he continues that teaching about setting the table. He continues that, uh, that analogy, that metaphor that the psalmist uses about setting a table in the wilderness. And we see again this uh, reminder of the nation of Israel in the wilderness and them receiving the manna in the wilderness and God feeding them in their need and in their destitution and their loneliness. Jesus again reminds them of this when he takes the 5,000 and he feeds them in the wilderness and then he gathers them again together on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and now gathers them in the synagogue at Capernaum and teaches them again about this true manna that's set down. He says, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and guess what happened the next day? They were still hungry and they had no eternal life in them. He says, I'm setting a table, I'm providing for you food and drink, I'm giving you bread and wine that will bring to you eternal life. And of course, this table is set not with something that God gives us, right? He doesn't give us a little bit of grace and give us a little bit of mercy, but his desire is to tabernacle with us. His desire is to dwell with us. His desire is to abide in us. And to dwell in us, he gives us himself. He gives us his own flesh and blood so that we have a radical abiding dwelling in the body of Christ. You might say that we are what we eat. And so we eat Christ and we become part and members of the body of Christ and he dwells with us. And when Christ resurrects, the promise again that he gives is our resurrection. You notice that that's the promise. The promise isn't, and then one day you'll go to heaven. 
like sometimes we hear it talked about, what does Jesus say? He says, I will raise him up on the last day. Do you remember how many times we heard that in the 10 verses before last Sunday? Three times he says that. And I will raise him up on the last day. And I will raise him up on the last day. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now he said it for us a fourth time in as many verses. I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on me, not like the bread of the fathers. So he says it over and over again. This isn't just a throwaway phrase that he's giving us. This isn't just uh, one little bit of a verse, but Jesus over and over tells us in his complete and foundational way that he is that bread and wine. He is that food and drink. It is his flesh that we consume so that we may dwell with him, that we may abide with him as one body so that when he is resurrected, we too will share in that resurrected life with him. And in Make no mistake that he goes from the wilderness to the Sea of Galilee into the synagogue of Capernaum and he capstones this teaching in the synagogue. Because what's the synagogue? The synagogue is a tabernacle for the law, right? The Jews would write the law out, they would write the Torah out, and they would keep it in a what? A tabernacle, a box, right? Where they would keep it safe and then they would come on the Sabbath day, on Saturday, and they would unroll the Torah and they would read the law of God. This is a tabernacle, a holy keeping place for the law. And Jesus is connecting this for us. He's saying, you know the promises of the law. You know the promises that were made to the people in Moses. You know the promises of the wisdom literature. All these promises are now being fulfilled. All those things you have been reading about in the Torah are now come to life here in me and will be given to you. And so he's saying, I have fulfilled all of these things. That's why he goes into the synagogue to teach these things. So now that we've received the body of Christ, now that we've accepted that call of the simple, we've said, okay, that's me. I need to receive the body of Christ. I need to receive his wisdom. I need wisdom itself to come and abide in me and my flesh and in my life. Now the question is, what is the result of that? How is it we're supposed to live? What's the call? And uh, St. Paul is telling us here in Ephesians chapter 5 that that call is to the saints. That's what we're called, the saints. This is Sophia, right? Or excuse me, Hagios, right? You remember the great cathedral in Constantinople, Hagia Sophia, right? Holy wisdom. So now we have holy wisdom come together and he's saying that the saints, right? Hagios, the holy people of God, the people who are holy and set aside for God have a certain kind of life to live. And it's no mistake that he identifies sexuality as a very important place in which we need to maintain and effort in holiness. Because as we know that there is nothing more powerful that human beings do than to be sexual. Because we make people that way. That's it. We procreate, we participate in creation with God in being sexual. There is nothing more powerful that we do. And with that great power comes, as Spider-Man likes to say, great responsibility. And so we have to be careful in the ways that we're sexual. And St. Paul says, it's not even the way that we're sexual. He says, you've got to be careful how you talk about it. He says, this is no place for filthy talk, foolish talk, and crude joking. Am I the only one who hears this on a daily basis? 
I had another job working in a, in a, a metallographer's lab, and they would play uh, the classic rock station all day long, right? All day long. I'd get to the end of listening to those advertisements, and I'd want to go to a, a, a strip club and buy a new truck and drink a lot of beer, right? And I'd get out of that job, and I'd think, why, why am I thinking about a new truck and wanting to drink a lot of beer? Well, because I'd been listening to eight hours of every 15-minute advertisements for those three things. And guess what? It works. They would not be spending billions of dollars on these ads if they did not work to affect our hearts and our minds. And we're stupid enough to listen to this filth and think that it's not going to affect us. What does that say about us? That says, oh, I'll be the exception. I'm strong enough. I'm wise enough. In other words, we're not answering the call of simplicity. Because if we answer the call of the simple fool, we'll say, yeah, I'm not strong enough to undergo that. I'm not wise enough. I can't listen to that filth and not have it affect me. So we've got to change who it is that we're dealing with. We've got to change who it is that we're hanging out with. We've got to change who it is that we listen to and what it is that we listen to. We're really big on telling our teenagers, be careful who you pick for your friends. But then we watch whatever kind of trash they put on television and radio, right? And we have to be careful and we have to, to shield ourselves and be careful what kind of talk we're listening to. Because if we don't recognize the great power and holiness of sexuality, we will be consumed by the dangers that come with it. And the dangers are death. The dangers are death. Millions, millions killed in abortions, in the IVF embryos that never get used, in the deaths of sexually transmitted diseases, of the heartbreak and the hopelessness that comes with giving ourselves to someone who doesn't care anything about us, the dangers are real. And what we need to do is we need to talk about the ways that we can talk and inform the ways in which we're called to be sexual. Because it's very simple. The ways that we're called to be sexual are we're supposed to be celibate out of marriage and we're supposed to have fidelity in marriage. See how complex that was? Celibacy outside of marriage, fidelity in marriage. That's it. And we can't think that celibacy is so easy, that we're so strong, that we can just kind of go along in life and not have those temptations, right? If we're participating in that crude joking and talk, we're going to start thinking different ways about our own bodies and the bodies of others. Rather, we have to practice and be disciplined about the way that we talk about ourselves and about each other in holiness. He says that we have to walk as children of light and we have to discern what is pleasing. I love that line. Try to discern what's pleasing. That word discern is a wonderful one. It comes from the Hebrew binyah. And the binyah was the tent. The tent that sprouts. So the tent that the Hebrews would make would sprout and grow. It was a growing living tent. They could add a room anytime they wanted. It was a goat hair tent. And anytime the family grew, they could simply add a wall. And any wall that needed to be replaced, as they often did every year, would be taken down and turned into a floor mat. And the binyah, these living walls that they would make to separate these rooms were made to separate the men from the women. So discernment or understanding is about being able to tell the difference between men and women. Not as op opposites, but as complementarians. 
And when we can no longer tell the difference between men and women and the way that we're supposed to complement each other, we lose all wisdom and discernment and holiness of living. What separated those kids in the writing center? Humility and effort. That's it. Effort is everything. We see it every day. People who are willing to work hard and try, and people who aren't. And that's what's going to separate us at the end of the day. The humility to say that I need the living God who came down from heaven. I need his flesh, and I need his blood to abide in me and give me strength, so that I can make the effort to try and tell the ways of God in my life every day. May we receive his body and blood. May he abide in us and may we truly discern the ways of God in our daily lives this day and forevermore.